Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. It's 2023 and I am Mike Brown. Uh, across the table from me is my good friend, Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. 2023. We made it. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's hoping that 2023 is a hell of a lot better than the last, oh my gosh, three years. Uh, 2022 wasn't bad nah, it was, for yeah. Justin and I anyway. It started looking up, didn't it? It, it did. Yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. In the rural area known as Drummond Township near Perth, Ontario, about a mile north of the village of Balderson's Corners, in the early morning hours of December 10th, 1828, what appeared to be an accidental fire resulted in the deaths of Thomas Easby's wife and four eldest children. Only a month later, it was the word of Thomas's only surviving son that painted a different, more sinister picture. Thomas was arrested, charged with five murders, and a brief trial was held. Easby was convicted and sentenced to hang. This is Dark Poutine episode 251, Canada's first mass murder, the Easby family. According to several sources, including Lee Meller's book Rampage, Thomas Easby was Canada's very first mass murderer. As this is a historical case having happened almost 200 years ago, much of the research for this episode has come from sparse and sometimes hyperbolic newspaper reports and has been briefly mentioned in books and on several websites. Most informative was the 2016 article by Ron W. Shaw for the Perth and District Historical Society at perthhs.org. 
According to their website, quote, the society is an unincorporated independent association that works closely with other area groups with similar heritage interests and is run by volunteers with an interest in preserving the community's history. It has been running in various forms since the late 19th century. The group's hard work allows us access to information about the tragic story of the demise of the Easby family. Situated in eastern Ontario, smack dab between Ottawa and Kingston, the Perth area has a long and rich history. It starts, of course, with the indigenous Algonquin people of the region who had lived there for thousands of years prior to the arrival of the Europeans in the early 1800s, just before this story takes place. The Perth Museum's website indicates, quote, We hereby acknowledge that Lanark County is situated on unceded traditional Algonquin territory, and with this acknowledgement comes respect for the land, people, and the unique history of the territory, end quote. Isn't it nice that historical societies are changing a little bit? Yeah. Remember when you were a kid, you'd go to like the you know, like the town museum from the historical, and it was like how the white folk tame the land. Yeah, exactly. And and there were like no brown people, no gays, no nothing, and it was like this, you know, history is written by the victors sort of thing. Yeah, and it's changing, thank God, because history is just the local history is history, right? Right. And if you're whitewashing that stuff, it's not good. Yeah, there's more to it, and I'm glad. Yeah, it's nice to see. Smaller places acknowledging things like that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Located on the Tay River, the town of Perth was a military outpost first established in 1816 after the War of 1812. Perth was designed to direct people to an unsettled interior and done so through government-sponsored military settlement and assisted immigration. While named after Perth, Scotland, this region was settled by a mix of Scottish, Irish, and European settlers. Many of the Scottish immigrants were stonemasons. Their work can be seen in many area buildings and in the locks of the Rideau Canal. The area was sectioned into six townships, which were South Shearbrook, Bathurst, Drummond, Beckwith, North Burgess, and North Elmsley. In 1926, Lanark County got its first police officer, Anthony Wiseman was appointed High Constable for Perth, but there was not a lot for him to do other than wander the streets and let people know about upcoming events. According to the Perth Historical Society, quote, at specific locations he would stop, ring his bell, and make proclamations to the gathered crowd. He also sold hot mutton pies, ginger beer, and other delicacies. Crimes did occur, sometimes violent ones, but these were few and far between. So a cop and an entrepreneur. Yeah. Hear ye, hear ye, I have news. And mutton pie for 10 cents, two for 19. Two for 19 cents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've never eaten a mutton pie, have you? Mm, it's just... Yeah, it's like shepherd's pie. Yeah, it's lamb, mutton. It's just yeah. sort of... Uh, what's that expression? Mutton dressed as lamb. Oh, yes. <laughs> My grandfather, who was in World War One. All they would eat was mutton in the trenches, and he refused to eat any lamb after he returned. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> oh, no. It just, he said it reminded him of being in the trenches. Well, yeah, I mean, if you had to eat something in the trenches, you probably wouldn't want to eat it again. Yeah, after. no kidding. I don't want to be reminded of that. Life wasn't easy for the immigrants in the region. They had to build their lives from scratch. But this was a far sight better than the hopeless existence they'd been facing back home in Scotland. To them, 
Canada was the promised land. From PerthHS.org, quote, They asserted that nowhere in the world could a family live so happily as in Canada. By 1827, they were living in plenty. They had heavily laden tables and houses packed with Indian corn, peas, wheat, and oats, several hams resting in nooks. They were better dressed than tradesmen in Scotland. Often when I am feeding the dogs and cats with meat that I have had for ourselves, the tears are like to run over my cheeks for the poor starving folk at home. End quote. One of the early settlers arriving in the area with his growing family in the early 1820s was a man named Thomas Easby, a former crofter from Scotland, and his wife, Anne. Easby built a small shack on the land which he was assigned, labeled Ninth Concession of Drummond, Lot 3 West, just inside the northern part of Drummond Township. There, Easby, a large, hard-working, sober and quiet man, built his shack and began raising his family and farming his plot of land. Crofter, noun, British, an owner of a tenant or a small farm, especially in Scotland and Northern Ireland. Slang. <laughs> owner or tenant, yes. <laughs> I guess that's where the last name Croft comes from. Perhaps. Perhaps. In that. You know, Stockton means something like where there a bunch of trees were cut down, like the stock or something like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What does brown mean? <laughs> It's, it's a color, Matthew. <laughs> well, why, why, but where did the name come from? It could have been like from the hair or the skin, actually, skin color. But uh, maybe you were a tanner. Well, I wasn't because I'm adopted. So maybe, my, maybe your adopted family were tanners. Could have been. Who knows? Well, maybe they, then their last name would have been Tanner. <laughs> maybe somebody decided to shake it up shake it up a little a bit years well ago. brown with an e actually comes from norma we, let's not get into okay. this <laughs> we digress john tullis and his wife margaret and their eight children lived on the eastern section of lot three and right next door to the easby place at around 3 a.m on the cold winter morning of December 10, 1828, the matriarch of the Tullis family was jarred awake by the sound of shouting close by. She woke John, who looked outside. Through the woods to the west, they could see an orange glow. It looked as though the Easby's shack might be on fire. Tullis woke his eldest boys, John Jr. and Sinclair, and sent them to see if they could help. The boys ran through the woods, shouting as they went. The owner of the burning cabin, Thomas Easby, who lived there with his wife and their five children, heard the Tullis boys approaching and yelled, Who comes there? The Tullis boys identified themselves and told Thomas that they were there to help. Thomas, however, his face soiled by soot and other dirt, said that he'd knocked the fire down himself and that everything was fine. He said that he'd sit up until morning to make sure the fire didn't flare up again. The boys offered to stay with him, but Easby reassured them that he was fine and sent them home everything's fine nothing to see here move along yeah exactly like the the house is on fire exactly. i'm full of dut actually <laughs> that's a combination of dirt and soot you just made up a new word i did dut. i'm gonna write to the oxford english dictionary and ask for it to go in right it, it can go in right beside goblin mode which like, is the word of the year for not, this year really is, yeah never heard of it okay so that is really dodgy though like yeah can you imagine you go over to help and they're like shooing you away yeah right yeah, it's strange. Mm. Well, doesn't look strange at that time, but it looks strange after considering what went on. As the day dawned, John Tullis Jr. woke 
and as he looked out the window, noticed the flames again through the woods in the direction of the Easby's shack. Young John pulled on his boots and coat once again and ran through the woods, finding Easby outside with his youngest son, four-year-old Joseph. Easby told the Tullus lad that, that the fire in the house had burned out a control through the night and Anne and the other four children had died in their beds. Tullus later said that he thought he could hear groaning from inside the cellar of the home, but Easby said he was mistaken, claiming that his wife and children had been dead for hours. Easby said that he had been awakened, choking in the smoke of a fire that had somehow broken out on the straw bed occupied by Anne and his four eldest children. He claimed he'd opened the door to allow for air circulation and tried to drag the bed outside. The fresh flow of air only made the fire more intense, so much so that the flames burned the wood floor away beneath the bed, sending it and its occupants tumbling into the cellar below where they perished. Thomas said at one point he'd seen his wife sit up amid the flames only to collapse back onto the bed. He also said that he'd thrown water on the fire until it was out but it was too late for his wife and the children. The only child he'd been able to save, Joseph, was traumatized. The bodies were found in the cellar, all in one bed, and according to the coroner, William Matheson, were horribly scorched. But there are doubts as to the thoroughness of the coroner's initial examination of the bodies. The bedding and bed had been completely consumed by the blaze. The inquest, held the next day, ruled the deaths accidental. The victims, it was determined, had suffocated in the fire, as Easby had claimed. According to Ron W. Shaw's article, The Devil Visits Drummond Township, on PerthHS.org, quote, The bodies were taken to Perth, where on Friday, December 12, 1828, two days after the fire, they were buried in the old burying ground, Craig Street Cemetery. The funeral service was conducted by Anglican Reverend Michael Harris, who, quote, delivered a most eloquent and impressive sermon on the awfully melancholy occasion, end quote. Thomas Easby, now a widower, returned to his farm to rebuild his shack after the damage from the fire. Thomas had a lot of work to do and was in no way situated to raise a four-year-old boy on his own. So Joseph was taken in by Martha and Thomas Richardson, who lived nearby on lot two west of the 8th concession of Drummond. Joseph was very quiet at first, not saying much at all. Over the years, what happened next has been retold so many times that the truth has really been lost. Some versions of the story claim that Mrs. Richardson overheard the only remaining Easby boy mumbling and singing to himself that his father had killed his mother with an axe. Other versions involve Joseph watching the Richardsons build a fire and exclaiming, that is what Daddy did to Mommy. The Quebec Gazette on the 19th of February, 1829, reprinted a report from the Perth Independent Examiner claiming that Joseph would, quote, often talk it over to himself when no one appeared to be listening, point to the spade, tell how his father struck his mother with such an instrument, show how he flung coals among them to burn them, end quote. More than 67 years after the events of December 10, 1828, a letter to the Perth Courier, signed only with the letter M, claimed dramatically that, quote, while some of the Richardson boys were cutting wood, the little fellow picked up a club and in handling it, talked after this style. This is the way daddy done my mammy, and this is the way daddy done to mentioning each of the children, end quote. At first, Martha Richardson thought the boy's claims were that of a traumatized mind, 
but he persisted. Out of concern that the youngster might be telling the truth, Martha spoke to her neighbor, John Balderson, a justice of the peace, who in turn called on William Matheson, and they returned to the Easby's place February 10th, 1829. They re-examined the scene and spoke with Easby. Things didn't seem to add up. How had the house not burned down completely and only the floor, bed, and the Easby woman and her children have been the only casualties? It didn't make sense, especially as Thomas and little Joseph had been completely uninjured. Matheson admitted he'd taken Easby at his word, but now wanted a second look at the bodies. Thomas was arrested and held in a cell at the courthouse while the investigation was carried out. The remains of Anne Easby and her children were disinterred on February 11, 1829, and taken to the town's courthouse. There, two doctors in town and the town's apothecary participated in more thorough autopsies. Anne's skull was smashed to bits in what appeared to be as many as five brutal blows from a heavy, blunt weapon. All four of the children had similar injuries to their skulls, and all five suffered other wounds to the fleshy parts of their bodies. This had not been an accident at all. Easby's family, the medical men determined, had been murdered. Most shocking of all, they also determined that Anne Easby was pregnant at the time of her death, bringing the terrible murder toll to six. Everyone present was horrified at learning the real fate of Anne and the kids. Thomas was brought from his cell to see what he'd wrought upon his family, and he seemed emotionally unmoved as he was handed his wife's skull and asked how the injuries happened. All Thomas could say at the time was he didn't know what had occurred. According to Ron W. Shaw's article, The Devil Visits Drummond Township, on PerthHS.org, quote, Easby was returned to his jail cell and charged with murder, but only with a single count, that of his wife, Anne. With no sense of prejudgment or concern for poisoning the jury pool, the Perth Independent Examiner opined that, quote, we will not say anything to harrow up feelings which must be already goaded to the quick. A few months, and he must appear before the tribunal of his fellow mortals to satisfy the justice of his country, and finally before a judge to whom the secrets of every heart and the motives of every action are known, who will award him his portion with unerring certainty. From man he can expect no mercy, but we cannot set limits of the mercy of omnipotence. That's with a capital O. Neither is it our part to draw aside the veil which conceals futurity from human ken, end quote. While in jail, awaiting his trial, set for that summer, Thomas began to talk to the jailer James Young. He admitted he'd bludgeoned his whole family to death with a club, a birch log. He'd killed the kids first while Anne was out, and then when she returned, he'd killed her too. After they were dead, to cover up his crime, he set fire to the straw bed in which the bodies lay. He was then asked why he'd done it. Thomas again said he wasn't sure. He did say, though, that about a month before he'd done it, the devil had begun talking to him and had convinced him to murder his wife and children. Thomas also admitted he'd planned to kill little Joseph, too, but when he'd raised his club over his head to deliver the death blow, his youngest son had looked up at him laughing and smiling. On seeing the boy's innocence, he couldn't bring himself to kill the lad and decided to spare him. Who knows? Had Thomas Easby killed Joseph too, he might just have gotten away with the killings. More after a quick break. 
I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. The murder trial of Thomas Easby was held in Perth, Ontario and began on August 17, 1929. The judge who oversaw the trial was Justice Levius Peter Sherwood, a well-known barrister and politician from the area. He was already famous by this time. In 1812, he was elected to the Legislative Assembly of Upper Canada representing Leeds. In 1818, he successfully defended two Métis against charges of murdering Robert Semple in the Red River Colony during what was called the Seven Oaks Massacre. Semple was the governor of the territories owned by the Hudson's Bay Company from autumn 1815 until his death. Semple was caught up in the struggle between the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company. On June 19, 1816, he unwisely challenged a party of Métis allies for the Norwesters, led by Cuthbert Grant. Semple and 20 of his men were quickly enveloped and slain. Two of Grant's parties, the ones represented by Sherwood, were tried in York, which was the name of Toronto at the time, for murder and six Norwesters for being accessories. All were acquitted. Sherwood was re-elected to the Legislative Assembly in 1820, and he was chosen as Speaker the following year. In 1825, he was appointed to the Court of King's Bench. He was the logical choice to try the high-profile Easby case. There were eight witnesses called by the Crown. The Tullis boys recounted their memories of the fire on the morning of December 10, 1828, as well as Thomas Easby's seeming nonchalant behavior having sent them home instead of retaining their assistance. John Jr. also recalled hearing moans he believed were emanating from the cellar of the Easby cabin and how Thomas had waved the teen's concerns away. Since the fire, the Tullis family had talked a lot about what had gone on and developed the opinion that Easby had murdered Anne and the children. Easby didn't seem bothered at all that he'd been widowed. As the evidence wasn't made public at the time, all they had were suspicions. From an article in the Perth Courier, quote, Mrs. Richardson, Joseph's adopted mother, also took the stand. She testified that, while at first she did not suspect Easby, the child's prattle worried her, and she finally consulted their neighbor, John Balderson, regarding her fears. Dr. Wilson, another Crown witness, stated that he found four distinct head wounds on the wife's head, one or two of which could have caused immediate death. Then, the nail was really driven into the coffin. John Balderson swore that the suspect had admitted while in jail to the murder. The jailer, James Young, also testified that Easby had frequently confessed to him and stated that he was about to murder the remaining child also and had taken him in his arms for that purpose, but the youngster smiled and laughed in his face and that he had not the heart to execute him. End quote. And there's my answer. There's your from answer. From earlier. Yeah. So... If you have a killer after you, it, you're supposed to stop and smile and laugh in his face. But I don't know if I would want to try that. Thomas pleaded temporary insanity, of course. He'd again claim that the devil was in his head directing him. From the Ottawa Citizen, quote, 
Easby addressed the jury. I was in a perplexed and insensible state of mind at the time of the murder and only had a faint recollection of what occurred. I seemed to have no power of myself, no volition of my own, but I was impelled to the act by some serious agency which entered my abode and appeared to assist me. After the dreadful tragedy, I called some of my family by name and discovered what I had done. I exclaimed to myself, Oh my God, I have murdered them. End quote. Oh, the good old the devil made me do it defense. Yeah, yeah that, that, that doesn't really seem to hold water. Still often used today. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he may have been kind of in a haze when he did it kind of thing out of anger. Who knows? There are differing reports about what his actual motive was. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I read was that he was out with some friends at some point, apparently drinking, even though they said he was a sober person. Mm -hmm. And the friend said, you know, when you're away, sometimes logging, somebody visits your wife. So mm. maybe it was that age old thing, jealousy that maybe. drove him, yeah. you know, and his wife who turned out to be pregnant, maybe he thought that wasn't his child. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. So who knows, but still doesn't justify it. It just kind of explains what his motive might have been. Yeah. The trial took only a single day. The jury retired to a room to deliberate and emerged only minutes later with a verdict. They'd found Thomas Easby guilty of the horrific crime of which he'd been accused. Justice Sherwood's speech to the convicted murderer was eloquent. Quote, Thomas Easby, how then could you so barbarously stain your ruffian hands in her, your wife's, innocent blood? Your whole cruel conduct exhibits monstrous cruelty. Your whole deportment in this appalling tragedy proves the possession that is usually found with ferocious tigers or bloodthirsty wolves. The violated laws of your country loudly demand satisfaction, and the streaming blood of your murdered wife and children puts to silence the entreating voice of mercy. Your days are numbered. Your mortal course is finished. End quote. That is eloquent. Right? Uh, judges don't write like that anymore. I don't they think. don't. You know what I'd do if I were a judge? What? I'd, I'd hire Lady Gaga to write and sing all my verdicts in court. Oh, dear. Picture this. Ra, 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 ah, ah. Roma, roma, gaga, ooh la la. You are a bad man. That's right? not very eloquent. <laughs> and then, and that's how they get. And so she'd, I'd get her to write like the statement and, the, and everything. And just do it in song. I think that's terrible. I think, I think all, yeah, we should always do verdicts in song. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would separate Canada from the rest of the world. Yeah. This is a long time ago, so please don't come at us for having a little fun here. But anyway, <laughs> oh dear. But we are aware that an entire family died. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I would still get Lady Gaga to sing. You still would. Yeah. The only sentence available for murder at the time was death by hanging. If I were a judge, I'd hire, hire Reba McIntyre to sing him to death. <laughs> Boom! No, that'd be too cruel. But then again, death would probably come quickly. I don't know. It, I think it would be excruciating regardless. If I do anything bad, yeah, like that would be the worst sentence. So to die by Reba. Yeah. Death by Reba. Death, death by Reba! <laughs> Reba the executioner. Oh, I'm going to get hate mail. Yeah, who cares? <laughs> 
Interestingly, murder was not the only crime at the time in the colonies for which you could be hung. According to another article by Ron W. Shaw on PerthHS.org, the death penalty, quote, applied to a list of 230 crimes ranging from the theft of vegetables or a cow to murder and treason, end quote. There was not a lot of faffing around at the time when carrying out a sentence. Appeals, if there were any, were dealt with in days instead of years, and it was only a week after his sentencing, August 24, 1829, that Thomas Easby was due to be hanged. From an undated unsigned typescript of the Perth Historical and Antiquarian Society, circa 1898, titled Early Legal History of Bathurst District in Lanark County, quote, The day was a public holiday. Schools were closed, work of all kinds suspended, and settlers came from all parts of the district, bringing with them their families to witness an event which it was hoped would have a great moral influence on the community. The scaffold in this case was erected in front of the courthouse on the roadway, and every point of vantage was at a decided premium for hours before the execution. End quote. People were shocked to see a very heavy Thomas Easby waddling his way up the stairs to the scaffold where he'd soon be hung. Apparently, during his six months behind bars, he'd eaten a lot and gained a pile of weight. As the executioner slipped a black hood over Easby's head, the killer's last words were cold. Justice has been done. The trap was sprung, and Easby's body kicked and twitched as the life was choked out of him. The minister present at the execution, Reverend William Bell, had spoken with Easby and found him anything but contrite for his crime. He didn't seem sorry at all. In his article on the case, Ron W. Shaw noted that Reverend Bell later wrote in his diary, quote, Easby, the murderer of his wife and children, was hanged in front of the jail and courthouse. Never did I see a criminal discover less contrition for his offense. He grew fat as a pig during his confinement, end quote. This was the first execution in Perth's history. There would be others later. According to yet another article by Ron W. Shaw on PerthHS.org, quote, on the night of Monday, December 16, 1850, at Adamston, northwest of Renfrew, a man named Bear split the skull of his sleeping employer, William Barry, with an axe. Bear then stole Barry's team and sleigh, loaded Mrs. Bear and their two small children along with valuables stripped from Barry's house, and set out for the U.S. border. He was overtaken and arrested by Lanark County Sheriff Andrew Dixon and Carlton County Sheriff James Fraser at Rose's Inn in Montague Township near Smith's Falls. Tried jointly with his wife before a jury at Perth on May 2, 1851, Bear was convicted of murder and sentenced by Judge William Henry Draper to hang. Although Bear later swore that his wife made him do it, Mrs. Bear was discharged. An appeal to the Governor-General for clemency was denied, and on Saturday, May 17, 1851, Bear went to his death, end quote. From the Perth Courier, quote, At about half-past ten, Francis Bear, the murderer of William Barry, suffered the last penalty of the law by public execution in front of the courthouse. The unfortunate culprit, with his arms pinioned, clothed in a white gown and cap, ascended the platform in front of the gallows with a firm foot. He had received the last rites of the Roman Catholic Church that morning from the very Reverend J.H. McDonough, and was accompanied on the platform by that Reverend gentleman, as well as the Reverend Yvonne of Ramsey and Reverend Dr. Madden of Trent. The condemned man knelt down in supplication and repeated in a firm voice the prayers of the church, 
after which he glanced at the crowd before him but said not a word. He took his position under the gallows, and his doom was sealed. In a few minutes, after the convulsive struggles, all was over. His spirit had taken its flight to another state of existence. The body hung for about an hour, when it was lowered into a rough box of sufficient length to contain it, and conveyed for interment to the Roman Catholic burying ground. End quote. Thomas Easby's story did not end with his death, but with a macabre twist. Thomas's body was interred in the English church cemetery near the jail. The evening after the burial, Thomas Easby's corpse was dug up and taken away. It was given to Dr. James Wilson, the same one who'd performed the autopsy on Anne Easby and her children, and had then testified at Easby's trial. He and two of his medical students used Thomas's corpse for dissection, and the students skinned the body in the process. A local tannery, run by an indigenous artisan, tanned the skin, which was cut up into small squares and sold for $2 apiece. From the early history of Balderson's Corners, written in 1905, quote, It is said that the late Dr. Wilson secured the body and that the skin was taken from it and tanned, and I understand at the show of Curios in Perth a few years ago, a strip of this tan skin was exhibited. The skeleton remained in the possession of Dr. Wilson till after his death and is, we believe, at present in the possession of a Perth boy in the far west, end quote. Holy crap, that is dark. Right? So, I read an article where somebody, it was actually Dr. Lee Meller who was on about it in his book, uh, Rampage. He mentioned that, you know, we poo-poo people who are into murderbilia and all that kind of stuff. And we think it's like a, a 20th century or 21st century sort of thing, like a modern society. They were doing it back then. That's what this was about. It was like, hey, this murderer did this. So let's keep a piece of them around because it's creepy and weird. Maybe this was your family, Brown Tanner, Tan Skin. <laughs> I don't think it was. Maybe they were involved. I doubt it. Okay. It's unclear what happened to Thomas's skeleton after that, but some of the artifacts made from his skin still survive. In an article on LanarkCountyTourism.com, Perth Museum worker Debbie Spruill spoke about the artifacts made from Thomas Easby's skin. A wallet? lampshade and purse. She said, quote, years ago, the Perth Courier was doing an article on Thomas Easby and the person in possession of these artifacts contacted the Perth Museum to have the pieces photographed. I got to see and touch some of the pieces. I, it was truly astonishing, the look and feel of them. That memory will always be with me, end quote. It rubs the lotion on its skin. Yeah, like how do you deal, how do you care for a lampshade made of human skin or a wallet or a purse? Like carefully, I guess. I I guess it's very odd. What an odd thing to want to keep. Do you remember that stuff when you were a kid that you'd you'd rub onto your boots like muskrat oil or sure yeah. What was it called? I can't remember. But yeah. I just got that flashback. Oh, maybe that's you'd have to shine it. Musk oil or something. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm picturing them like using that stuff to keep it all fresh and life. Good gosh. Joseph Easby was sent away to the big city of Toronto. He was raised by Mr. and Mrs. John Hay, and it isn't clear whether he'd ever heard of what happened to his family or remembered anything about his father or the night of the murders. The Hayes loved young Joseph as if he were their own, never receiving any kind of compensation for his care. 
1856, Joseph Easby fell from the deck of a small schooner and into Toronto Harbor where he drowned. He was 32 years old and never married. So Aww. that was the entire end of the Easby clan. Oh, I feel sad for Joseph. Yeah. Look, it only made it to 32. Right? Yeah, I mean, we had some fun with this episode, and I do that a little bit when it's hundreds of years ago. Right? Yeah, Because sure. there's no... Yeah. But can you imagine you're living in this shack? Mm-hmm. Like, what a rough life, and then you end that way? It, it seems like it's... Like, a murder like that seems... How do I put this? Contemporary. Like, like it's, it surprises me that they that stuff like that happened back then. Sure. You know well, I mean? it was, quote-unquote, Canada's first mass murder. You, you needed to survive, right? Yeah. And, like, I think when you really have to survive, you wouldn't be murdering people that help you survive. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, you wouldn't think so. Strange. But, uh, yeah, so that's it for Canada's first mass murder, the Easby family. And, I mean... It's called Canada's first mass murder. I don't know about that because there were massacres that happened, you know, and you could call that mass murder very easily. Yeah, but it makes for a nice encapsulation in sure. a title of a, of a podcast well, episode. It, well, there were that. It, this podcast isn't the only one that's know, called it that. I know. But, but anyway. But yeah, I mean, it's probably maybe one of the first, you know, recorded that people remembered at the time. Sure. Yeah. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All righty. So we did have a bunch of voicemails this week, but that is fun too. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's have a listen and see what some folks had to say. Okay. Um, the first one, just bear with me because I know there's two parts to it. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to play this. Please don't be offended, Matthew. I won't. Hi, guys. I just wanted to call. Uh, first time caller. Been listening through. Um, for some reason, they just get worse as the time goes on. Don't know what that's about. Maybe it's the, the co-host. Anyway, um, I had my first experience with Christine tonight, so I felt it celebratory to call you guys. Um, in North Carolina, it's kind of hard to find. Um, also, I wanted to thank you guys for uh, making me realize that my dad's childhood nickname for me was actually an insult. Why he decided to call me Dink is beyond me. But thank you guys so much, and don't forget to go take a shit in your hat. So, Dink. She obviously has no taste. Right. Because she's saying something about a, a certain co-host. No. But here's the... That's okay. No, I'm not thing. everyone's cup of tea. It's fine. Matthew. What? Hang on. She called back to oh. explain herself because she felt bad. Hi, guys. Um, I just called before saying about the whole father insult thing. And I realized I may have accidentally insulted you guys. Me, I'm a weirdo and I listen to them backwards. So the current host now is phenomenal and co-host. When you go back in time to the original and starting. Not great. And I can't remember if I actually did that right, so that's why I wanted to call back and clarify. I'm going to go and have an anxiety attack. Thanks again, guys. Bye. <laughs> no. She has great taste. She, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. No, that's lovely. That's funny. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, I honestly, like I was thinking, when I heard the second voicemail, I thought, you know, the show has grown and it... it 
it may have a bit to do with co-hosts and all that kind of stuff, but I feel like my my skill level has grown as far as podcasting goes too. So yeah, if you listen to old episodes, I am so embarrassed about some of those because they're terrible. The research isn't great, all that kind of stuff, but people still love them. Like even uh, as early as episode four, I keep getting messages about how people love the Halifax explosion one. So it's so funny. That's like a really popular. It one, is super isn't it? popular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you, you've you, you even have new arms for us for our microphones today. I do. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting way more professional. <laughs> well, we had to do it because, uh, like those. Well, number one, the one that I used broke. Yeah. And then yeah, the other ones were just kind of flimsy, and I thought. Yeah, let's put some of the donut money to good use and like actual get get some good. It was arm money, not it was arm money. money. <laughs> it was actually the money actually went to equipment, which was great. Yeah, exactly. No, thanks for calling in and and clarifying. But that being said, you know, it's um the only reason if I care if people like me or not. Yeah, is if they like Mike's show because I do this for him and for fun. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, now I'm all misty. Well, let's move on to the next voicemail. Uh, this one looks like it's, uh, a little longer. Hey. Hey guys. My name is Amanda Day. I've been a listener for a while now. My sister, Victoria, um, introduced me to your podcast and I'm so glad she did. We are both born and raised in a small town in Newfoundland called Harbor Grace. We also have some family living in Lunenburg and the Mahone Bay, Nova Scotia area. So that's always nice to have in common with you guys. Um, I just wanted to comment on the episode you did about the tidal wave and the tsunami thing that hit the coast of Newfoundland back in the 1920s, I believe it was. I remember as a little girl, my mom told me a story that her grandfather uh, witnessed that event. And after the tsunami rolled back out and they were doing damage control, he always remembered seeing seaweed or kelp on the altar of the church in Riverhead. Riverhead is the name of a small town at the head of the harbor. Um, so he used to tell his uh, his kids that, that that's what he stands out the most in his memory was that the water came in so far that it even left seaweed on the altar of the church. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for doing what you do. And I will not tell you to go shit in your hat because... As a Canadian, I have never heard that term before, so <laughs> I will not tell you that. I will tell you to have a great day and take care. Cheers, guys. Well, it is a Canadian saying because a Super Dave Osborne, a Canadian, mm-hmm. used that in uh, the TV show Bazaar. And this podcast is making a Canadian Yes, exactly. Thing. Amanda Day. That is a good, solid name. Yeah. Amanda and Harbor Grace, Day. I actually have heard that story about... Uh, the, the seaweed on the altar. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that, uh, you know, her grandpa would be telling that story yeah, or her great grandfather, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Thanks for calling Amanda. Thank you very much. I like, I love calls from Newfoundland. Yeah, me too. I like calls from the, the East coast yeah, for sure. Sort of home. Yeah. Right? And, and especially she mentions Lunenburg and Mahone Bay, which yep. were my stomping grounds for sure. So yeah. You're stumbling grounds. Stumbling. <laughs> yes. Definitely stumbling and bumbling. Uh, here's another one. Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Megan from the East Coast. Um, I actually have a question. 
I just got finished listening to the um, Jody Henriksen, uh, the podcast about her, like not the podcast, but the episode about her. And I'm just wondering um, if she was ever found. Because I tried to Google it, but I couldn't find anything. So I'm like, well, I'll just call you guys and ask. Um, and yeah, I was super excited about last week's the um, Caledonia Mills. It's the Spook Farm. It was um, just where I live. Um, I don't live far, so it's uh, it's always been kind of like a tall tale and things like that, like I heard growing up. Um like they always say, like, don't go there at night, weird things happen, and, uh, like, your lights will go off and stuff like that, and don't go ask the locals, they don't want to talk about it, <laughs> and stuff like that, so it was quite interesting um, to hear your guys' take on it, and there's actually things that I had no idea anything about, like about the dog, or the, um, like, the black dog, and different things, so it was pretty cool. Anyways... Go take a poop in your toque and have a good day. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. Yeah, that's really funny. And <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that, you know, people hear a story that they've actually heard from their hometown and we added a little something to it. So I'm kind of proud of that. In yeah. A way. Uh, yeah. But as far as Jody Henriksen goes, yeah, Matthew was looking at me like, which one is that? <laughs> Jody Henriksen. I remember she was from Squamish, but went to a party on Bowen Island and disappeared. And her boyfriend at the time was suspected okay. of having done something with her body. No, she's not been found. She's never been found. Nobody knows oh, that's so sad. what happened to Jody Henriksen. And that was episode 79, and it was titled that, What Happened to Jody Henriksen. So, no, she has not been found yet. That's so sad. It is. Um, we did have a couple more voicemails. But again, it looks like there are two from the same person. So again, okay. once again, we had somebody call in. Insult Matthew. No, no, give us some information <laughs> and then then per, then call us back with a correction. So let's listen to both. Let's do it. Mike, Mike, Mike. Baz Luhrmann did not direct Chicago. Chicago was, I believe, Ron Howard. Um. Obviously, I'm listening to the um, the latest episode, which I thoroughly enjoy, to be honest. I love the ghost stories you do here, and I'm a huge fan of, you know, circum natural circum supernatural circumstances. So, uh, but I just had to call in and let you know that uh, Baz Luhrmann, although controversial, didn't direct Chicago. Uh, anyways, love the podcast. Uh, and neither did you know, Hookie. Go take a shit in your hat for that comment. And uh, let me correct. Have a go. Okay. Bye. Okay. It, it wasn't directed by Rob Marshall. It was. Okay. <laughs> but I think that's what this callback is about. He's oh, correcting okay. himself, so he calls to correct me, and then <laughs> and then has to call and correct himself. Excellent. I love this. So this is the thing. I love people. If you call to correct us, it usually goes in the bin. And honestly, I didn't care whether or not Baz Luhrmann directed Chicago. I just think but, it sucked. But this is a great voicemail, so we're going to play yeah, it. Yeah, we're going to play this. I love it. Oh, hi, Mike. It's me again. 
yeah, I just looked it up. It wasn't Ron Howard. I had the Grinch stuck in my head because I watched it last night. It was Rob Marshall. Uh, so I apologize. <laughs> Halfway. Halfway. <laughs> take a shit in my hat now Duh. for that mistake. Uh, okay, bye. Yeah, so this is the I, thing. I love him. That was fantastic. This happens to me all the time. Yeah. If I go at like if I go at somebody about yeah. something, yeah. nine times out of ten, for some reason, it boomerangs on me. <laughs> but you, yeah, it's like yeah. So I love it. So I, I <laughs> well, thank you. And I really, like I said, I don't give a shit who directed that movie. It was terrible. <laughs> it was still terrible for it you. Was either terrible. either way. And I don't like Baz Luhrmann movies. The only one I really liked, or Rob all, Marshall movies, from by the sounds yeah. of it. The only Baz Luhrmann movie I liked was Romeo and Juliet with mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Great soundtrack. Claire Danes. Yeah, that's what I think I liked about it was the soundtrack. The soundtrack was good. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Thanks for calling. Yeah. And, that, and correcting. I love it. That's it for voicemails. <laughs> that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. On to Patreon and Donut Money donors and... Holy smokes, people were filled with the Christmas spirit. Nice. Because we have a bunch, a bunch of patrons and Donut Money donors. We appreciate all of you very, very much. Of course we do. And you're going to hear about it right now. First up, we have L. Stone from Pine River, Minnesota. Thank you, L. Thanks, L. Yeah, what does L do in Pine River, Minnesota, Matthew? L gives white water rafting tours on the beautiful dam park there in Pine River, Minnesota. Oh, really? Yeah, you can. She's like, you know, in front of the boat with the paddle, telling people not to capsize. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. If you tip over, well. That's too bad. It's too bad you're going to be. They lose a lot of tourists there. <laughs> not when Elle's doing it. Though. Right. Maybe yeah. not. I don't want to get sued. That is a joke. Elle does. Elle, Elle keeps everyone safe. Yeah. It's, well, they all do. And I'm sure that the whitewater rafting I tour companies that run there do as well. I don't think anyone actually whitewaters on the dam, Mike. Okay. <laughs> Next up, we have Bar- <laughs> Barbie Stratyuk. And she's from Thorsby, Alberta. Thorsby. Thorsby, Alberta. I don't know where Thorsby is or what they do in Thorsby, but Barbie does something there. What the heck does she do, Matthew? I think she owns a ranch. A ranch? Yep. And and does she make ranch dressing? No, she has a thousand head of cattle. Oh, I thought you were going to say a thousand island dressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thousand cattle dressing. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand head of cattle. What's the name of the ranch? Like, is it like the Bar K or the Barbie ranch? It's the Barbie ranch. (laughs) And you can get a barbecue when you're there. That sounds great. Yeah. I could do with some ribs or a feed of brisket. I had the best food in Montreal recently. I am envious because you got to have Montreal bagels. Yes. Montreal bagels are fantastic. I mean, you can get them here, the the Montreal style we bagels. We had them delivered direct from St. Viateur. Oh. They're still warm, so literally. Warm and soft. Car picks them up, 
zips them to our meeting. They're still warm. Oh my God, that yeah. sounds so good. Anyway, thanks, Barbie. Yeah, great. And enjoy your thousand head of cattle. Next, we have from Orleans, Ontario. And I don't know if it's Orleans or Orleans, but either way, it is Ontario. And her name is Adela Reed. Adela. And what does Adela do there? She's in the um, famous Orlean, Ontario Orchestra. Really? Yes. Though, so there's an orchestra. We're going to... Oh, no. That won't be yeah, in yeah. the past. Uh, so that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What does she... Does she play something in the orchestra? She the triangle. <laughs> she plays the viola. Oh. Why? Because, and I recently learned this from an Uber driver. Okay. When you play the viola... Yep. There's so few, many fewer viola than violin players in the world. Yeah. That you always have work. Well, interesting. Yeah. Well, there you go. So play your viola, Adela. There Adela, you go. the viola player. Yeah. Nice. Next, we have from Fairbow, Minnesota, Jennifer Abrams. Jennifer Abrams. Jennifer Abrams. Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. From Fairbow, Minnesota. Yeah. Did you know that Faribault is named after the son of um, Jean-Baptiste Faribault, who, who is a French-Canadian uh, fur trader? Oh, so French-Canadian fur traders being, are the namesakes for places in Minnesota. Yeah, the son moved there from Canada, and Ale Alexander Faribault, and uh, the town's named after him. That's kind of nice. I thought so. There you go. That's why Minnesotans have similar accents to Canadians, I think. Perhaps. We, a lot of Minnesotans listen to us. They do. Have you noticed that? Yes. We've I've, had two Minnesotans who are patrons this week. That's, that's cool. It is cool. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah. Oh, did we say what, what no. she did? No. We didn't. What does she do? She's an anti-fur activist. <laughs> oh, well, there she's you go. Going, she's going against the uh, the founder of her, of her, of her town. Oh, no. Why are, why are people anti-fur? I can tell you. And not anti-leather. Well, I think so, it, some people are anti-leather as well. Because it's safer to yell at a little old lady than it is a biker. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. <laughs> Next we have, and this is her username on Patreon, Sharon from Australia's Sapphire Coast. <laughs> Sharon from Australia's Sapphire Coast. So we didn't even have to guess where she's from because she told us in her username. And what does Sharon do there on Australia's Sapphire Coast? Matthew? Also known as Bega Valley Shire. Okay. Yes, and she does uh, tours of the Shire. Tours of the Shire. Well, yeah. uh, isn't the Shire actually in New Zealand? <laughs> well, but people get all the way to Australia. Yeah. And realize they just can't get on another flight, right? Oh, so, so they so, so they set one up there going, oh, okay. you're close enough. It's Hobbit light. <laughs> I've wanted to go to New Zealand about 15 times, but by the time I get to Sydney, I give up. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It is true. Well, there you go. So thank you, Sharon. That's thank really you. nice. Sharon from Australia, Sapphire Coast. Now this one, I think we might have done, but I'm not sure. So, so let's do it again. We'll do it again. Tina Ann from Victoria, British Columbia. Tina Ann. So what does Tina do in Victoria, Matthew? She captains one of the helijets that goes back and forth. Oh, there you go. Have you, have you ever been on the helijet? No, I would like to take the helijet, but it's expensive. So much easier than the ferry, though. 
Oh, yeah. I used to do work for BC Ferries. Yeah. And I always took the helijet to the meetings because <laughs> the ferries are too slow. Oh, yeah. How'd you get here? Ferry. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I walked on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got picked up by a taxi, driven all the way to Victoria. Helijet to do it, BC Yeah, well, hel helijet takes you right down to the harbor, like harbor air. Kind and of it's thing. cool because you're in a helicopter. Right. I've yeah. never been in a helicopter before. Really? Nope. I've been around helicopters filming and stuff. I've been in a Learjet filming, but never mm. off the ground in either of those things. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. I think that's your 2023 resolution is Mike gets a helicopter ride. I would love a helicopter ride. So back to Patreon. We It looked like Patreon just gave a whole pile of new patrons around a certain time. Some of the patrons who we've shouted out, I can't find. So if, there was, if we've I missed you. I think there was a glitch in the system of yeah. them reporting it. So if, I'll say it, if we missed you, can you send us an email? Darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And make sure that we get you because yeah. I like making fun of your jobs. <laughs> yes, we do too. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to donut money. And again, People are in the Christmas spirit uh, as far as donut money goes. So first up, we have Brianne Baxter from Vancouver. And she says, my appreciation for all the podcast hours that got me through 2022. Nice. Thank you, Brianne. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. What does Brianne do here in Vancouver, Matthew? Have you thought about that? Dog walker. She's a dog walker. Yep. There's a lot of dog walkers. You walk a dog. So I guess we could call you a dog walker. <laughs> I walk my dog. You do, well, you're a dog walker then. When he wants to walk. <laughs> Maybe you're a dog dragger. He is getting a little bit older and a little bit uh, more... Um, grumpy? Let's, not grumpy, just let's not walk too far. Stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Next, we have our good friend from the Yumber Yard, Lori St. Germain, sending Ooh. some holiday treats for you, Mike and Matthew, and a chewy treat for Steve. Happy holidays to you. All the best. Lori in Ottawa. Thank well, you, Lori. Thank you so much. I can't recall what Lori does, she's, Matthew. She's a senator in Ottawa. Oh, she's a senator. By that, I, by that I mean she plays the ice hockey. Oh, I thought she was going to be like in... No, you she, know, no, she plays the ice in hockey. In the Senate. And yeah? Lori always paddles her own canoe. She'll know what I mean by that. There you go. You should paddle your own canoe. Paddle your own canoe. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lori. Uh, next, we have Girolamo Voltaggio. Okay. What a great name. And all he said was donut money. Well, actually, I don't know if Girolamo is a, a man's name or a, let's just say they. Girolamo Voltaggio, Voltaggio sent us some donut money. I think if it had an A, it would be a she, but it has an O, so it's okay. a he. I think you're right, yeah. From Milano, fashion designer studied under Emilio Pucci. Oh, wow. Famous for his starry night bustiers, uh, he is. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. I, I look terrible in a bustier. <laughs> mm -hmm. Everyone has a fetish. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody would find it attractive. And last but certainly not least is our good friend, Denise Sakaki. Sakaki! Yeah, and uh, she sent us another huge donation. We really appreciate that this time of year. I know where she's from. Where's she from? None your fucking business, USA, planet Earth. <laughs> I think that's what it says on Facebook. 
Uh, no, I just made it up. You just made it and up. And she's a Renaissance woman. I thought she was from Seattle. No, she's just from none of your fucking business. Well, that must Renaissance be. woman, writer, photographer, designer, burlesque artist. She's a burlesque artist? Yeah. And she, well, that's cool. She, she illustrated a book called The Looney, The Canadian Dollar Coin. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Did you see the new Toonie with the black band around it in memory of the Queen? I did not. Yeah, there's an actual Toonie that is coming out, made by the Mint, that has a black band around it for uh, Elizabeth II. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Thank you, Sakaki. Yes, much appreciated, Denise. Uh, Renaissance woman. Denise has always been a big fan of the show, and we really, really, really appreciate your donation. Renaissance. <laughs> we appreciate everyone's. Look yeah. at this. Look at all these lovely people. Of so course. I'm just going through this list. All it's these nice. nice people. Forked out their money to keep us going. Yep. Uh, which I'm so grateful for. You have no idea. That was great. It is great. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Okay. And uh, so we are so glad that we're back for 2023. Things are looking up. This was our 250th episode. 250. 250. So, so a quarter of a way to a thousand episodes. What? Oh, is that my future? <laughs> 750 what? more of these. Do you not want to do them? Of course, I'll keep okay. plugging away. Please do. <laughs> I don't, there won't be another co-host, just so you know, folks. <laughs> Once I'm gone, it's just Mike. I'm just going to use a chat bot. <laughs> Hello. My name is Matthew, the chat bot. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's it. And don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. And not a bad apple. Bye-bye, okay. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> Her name is Elsbeth. Elsbeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elsbeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.